You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is what we're talking about today. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food. I wish I got that memo. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, this is so key, can add a single hour to his span of life? It may be that being anxious, we take hours away, but we can't add any. If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you so anxious about the rest? Karina. A reading from Luke. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once and we, when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. I took Sophia with me to church this morning, and we went and got her lemonade and a bagel of cream cheese, breakfast of champions, good dad. And when we got out of the, when I parked in front of the church and we got out of the car, I said, Sophia, can you grab me my bag? And she pulls my bag from the back seat and hands it to me. And I said, here's your lemonade, because I had it in the front with me, because didn't want her to spill in the car, good dad. And she said, here's what we'll do. I'll carry the breakfast, you carry the sermon. I said, my sermon is in this bag, because technically I have been trying to find one for the last week. And she said, no, the spirit is in your bag. He'll give you the sermon. <clears throat> I needed that this morning because this topic that we're talking about right now is far larger than any topic we could talk about in a year, let alone a sermon. And so my prayer for you all week has been that there will be healing in this message but not healing that comes from the information specifically, but healing that comes from the way the gospel sounds to you when you hear the information. We're going to say things today, but then the, then the Holy Spirit is going to take what is said and he's going to make it gospel for you. And so a long time ago, Randall Worley said, this is probably dating back to 2000, 2002, he said, we need to hear the sound of Christ crucified. And so as we're saying things that we believe the Spirit gave us to say, my prayer, and I'm going to pray right now, is that the Holy Spirit would make it gospel. Heavenly Father, I pray right now, as always, that you would anoint me to make preaching easy, that you would anoint Salem Tabernacle to make hearing your word a delight to the heart and soul. I pray that the ministry of word and sacrament would 
implant itself in our soul and our heart and bring newness of life growing out of us. And I pray that we would all hear the sound of the gospel at some point this morning. Amen. We're finishing our series on apocalypse, and we're going to begin a series in two weeks regarding what it means to be in transition in your life. If you're moving from one place to we're moving from the summer to the fall. And so we're, what does it mean to be in transition? What does it mean to be going? What does it mean to be in that vulnerable place of the in-between? Um, in the meantime, while we're on vacation next week, Elder Ron in one of his Hawaiian shirts is going to be preaching for us next week. <clears throat> so when Karina read, she reads words of Jesus where Jesus says, do not be anxious. He says, do not be afraid. Then he says, I'm coming like a thief. You want to know what keeps pastors up before we preach? Stuff like that. Don't be afraid, but if you're not ready for me, I'm going to come like a thief. Thieves are scary. I accidentally left my garage door open last night because we were tired when we got back from the church picnic. By the way, dope picnic, everybody. That was wonderful. Thieves can be scary. Jesus is like, fear not, little flock. I'm coming to break into your life and steal stuff. That sounds confusing. Do not be afraid. And then it says, walk in the what of the Lord? The fear of the Lord. How do we respond to a God who bids us not be afraid and then says we should be walking in the fear of the Lord? How do we not look at him and say, which God are you today, Jesus? The do not be afraid God or the be walk in the fear of the Lord God? Are you, did you really just say that we shouldn't have our treasure in earthen vessels where thieves could break in, but put our treasure in heaven where thieves don't break in, and then you just told us you're coming like a thief? The tension that is created when Jesus gets himself into trouble like this is the tension that we walk in, and one of the worst ways that Christianity can function is if these moments are resolved with no tension. An answer given that makes you say, oh, that makes perfect sense. Because life doesn't make perfect sense, our issues don't make perfect sense, our idols and our sin don't make perfect sense. Here is what one thing that the Bible says about the fear of the Lord, Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. This is key for our text today, who's saying, sell all of your possessions. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. We're here to talk a little bit today, to, to take the tiniest slice out of the topic of walking and living an anxious life. Twelve years I've been married. Twelve years I'm trying to figure out what to do when it's obvious something is up with my wife. And I say, how are you? And she says, fine. And every man knows this is a, not a good situation to be in. She's saying with her words, she is fine. And with all the body language and atmospheric drippings, she's not okay. So finally, we're, we're in the car. We were in the car a lot this weekend, and it gave us a chance to talk. And Jacqueline said something that really meant a lot to me. She said, there are times where I'm anxious. There are times where I'm thinking about something that's bothering me. And if I just come out and say it, it's probably going to make me feel worse. I just kind of sometimes want to think through things on the inside. But here's what you can do. Be near me, but just be a non-anxious presence. I'm like, this conversation's giving me anxiety. So, and I thought, that's beautiful. 
be with me, but be breezy. Don't not take things seriously, but don't be your Bill 10 mode intense. Just be with me and be light. It is a healing that needs to take place for us to even move toward being a non-anxious presence. What motivated me there, though, was I felt like that phrase is something from the Lord about all of us, not just me. But there needs to be a process, probably years of process, of learning how to be a non-anxious presence. So you go to the Bible, and you hear Jesus say, do not be anxious about your life. And you're like, thank you. The voice that said, let there be light, is now speaking and saying, don't be anxious. And he says, fear not, little flock. And you're like, he's so nice and so awesome. And then he's like, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And you're like, why? And he's like, I'm coming like a thief in the night. Why? How do we resolve? I, we need to move from anxiety to security. But how do we move from anxiety to security when the God asking us to do it is saying, I'm coming like a thief? I don't know. I'm asking you if you know. I don't have anything else to say today. That's as far as we got. I want to read a quote by N.T. Wright that speaks to the beginning of why we feel anxious. And N.T. Wright says this, the modern Western world is built on anxiety. You see it on the faces of people hurrying to work. You see it even more as they travel home, even more as they travel home. They are traveling home without having resolved life's problems. The faces are weary, puzzled, living with the unanswerable question as to what it all means. The world thrives on people setting higher and higher goals for themselves and each other so that they can worry all day and all year about whether they will reach them. If they do, they will set new ones. If they don't, they will feel they have failed. Was this really how we were supposed to live? A culture that makes us set goals and then the more we attain those goals, the more anxious we get because there has to be newer, bigger ones. As Jacqueline and I were talking about this year's Christmas gala coming up in December, which is coming fast, praise the name of Jesus when this hot air goes back to where it came from. I'm hot when it's 20. This is going to kill me. We were talking about the gala, and we both had this realization at the same time. The conversation started to go with, how can we have the best one ever after not having had it for three years? And immediately, we both realized the error of our ways where we say, why does every next thing we do have to be bigger than the thing before it? That's not healthy. This year, having one, being together at Christmas, raising a little bit of money to fight human trafficking is going to be a success no matter how it plays out. And we can have fun doing it because Jesus is going to be a part of it. Amen? We don't have to create this economy where every time we reach a level, the next time around we have to reach a higher one. We can't have a situation where because one year was good, if the next one was a, was a little bit less good, that that's now a bad year. Was this really how we were supposed to live? This creates anxiety. Jesus is saying to people who in, in, in the ancient world, in Second Temple Judaism, in that culture with Rome occupying the land, every single person Jesus spoke to was one proverbial gust of wind away from losing their home, losing their money, losing their lives, and becoming slaves like that. And he's speaking to a culture where death is so imminent for them, so normal for them, for them and he's saying to them, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. And they're like, we are anxious about things so far beyond that, Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he's getting down to the smallest things that are probably not even on everybody's mind 
a foreign army has taken over Jerusalem, and whenever they want to, they can do whatever they want to our men, women, and children. And you're over here talking about clothes, Jesus? What he's doing is he's getting down to the very bottom of the mundane, and he's saying there are two kinds of fear. There's the fear of the unknown that makes you insecure. And then there's the fear of the Lord that is nothing but security. Both make you tremble. But one leads to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of one leads to wisdom and the other to pure insecurity. So looking at us, looking at our culture since just, just since 2020, 2020 is like the new B.C. A.D. It's like 2019 feels like an entire generation ago. Because since then, we have had pandemic. We have had millions of people die. And in a three or four month span, hundreds of thousands of people die all around us. We are dealing with ailments. We're dealing with sickness. Racism reared its ugly head again and reminded us that it hasn't gone anywhere. Our political system falling apart. We're a house divided against itself. On the Feast of Epiphany, on January 6th, a symbol of America's security was taken over by an insurrection. Forget about how you feel about it, destabilizing everyone on every side permanently from saying, are we really as safe as we thought we were? I grew up hearing there will never be a war on our shores. There's been one. Civil war hasn't stopped. It's a, it's a destabilizing time. Our, we, we have reassociated with time. We've reassociated with illness. Those of us who are aging who are, are moving into the evening to the nighttime of our life, have never been more insecure about that. Thank you for that honesty. You said amen for a lot of people in this room right now who don't want to say amen to that. Thank you. Thank you. We get Jesus saying, do not be anxious. Because what happens when the unknown is now thrust in our face is whenever we are faced with the unknown, we get possessive. Things become mine. I don't know when I'm going to go. Time is now mine. Money is now mine. My opinion is now mine. My way of doing things is now the way it's going to be. And as we move through all of, the, all of the categories, we get possessive. I'm going to do me now. I'm not just going to go back to institutionalism. I'm not just going to go back to the, to the nine to five. I'm going to start. I'm going to travel, even if it means going into debt. I'm going to go all over the place. I'm going to do things because in reality, we are trying to massage the fact that we were thrust into the proof that we can't control anything. And the unknown destabilizes us, makes us anxious, and then we get possessive, we get controlling. The relationship is broken, if I think it's broken, kind of controlling. We move as Christians now, what I just said is universal. We move as Christians from, I, I, I've seen this theme, and now I'm talking to you, Salem. So if you're watching online, if you're watching this next month, I'm talking to Salem right now. I have sensed a shift even in our serving where people are saying, you know, my, my life now is about serving my family. Is that a good thing? But when that becomes your life's mission. Why did Paul say, to those of you who are married, live like you're not. To those of you who have worldly goods, live like you have none. He's not saying run around and cheat. He's saying there's an obligation to serve the world around us, not just our families. But there's this 
possessiveness that is now grabbing the family because as Christians, we're too smart to say, I'm, I'm not going to give up serving. But our new vice is that I'm only going to serve what is in my geographical close proximity so I don't really have to step out into the unknown. I can stay here and just focus on my family because that feels Christian enough, but really it's isolationism with a little bit of disguise. I just, I want everybody to know, I I am trying to not speak super confidently. I can't help myself because I actually really enjoy what I'm doing right now. But I want you to know, I'm wrestling even with what I'm saying because every word I'm saying isn't enough to describe what I'm feeling in my stomach as I'm saying it. You have to do the rest in the Holy Spirit this week. Like, I'm giving you the, the gun that says start, the race. You got to run it this week with, with what you're hearing right now. There's, your life will tell you the rest of this sermon. We get possessive. And then as we serve our families, as we serve ourselves, as we, as we enter into self-care, it's self-care wrong. But when, it, when your life becomes only caring about yourself, is that isolationist? Yes. We put our treasure into things. Even our own physical bodies become our treasure now. Our time becomes our treasure. Our vacations become our treasure. Our 401k becomes our treasure. Our, the, our education becomes our treasure. Our, our, our entrepreneurial pursuits become our treasure. All of these things we should be good stewards of. You all heard me say that, right? Because I'm going to say this. But they're all going to die. And so are you. And so what do we do in the face of the reality that the things we are working hard on are decaying as we speak? Like I just twisted my ankle moving from here to there because I'm decaying as we speak. It hurt. No one saw that? (laughs) Tweaked my whole leg just now. And so we put our treasure into things that we can possess. But it is susceptible to being stolen. But the problem is, and this is my last rant on anxiety for a moment, where your treasure is, there your... And the heart, when you look it up in the biblical Greek, is the seat of all of human affection. Whenever you see the word heart, it's the throne of all human affection. And what Jesus is saying is your whole desire system, the way that you are affectionate, that whole thing is getting put into whatever your most treasured possession is. And if your most prized possession is something that will decay, guess what's happening to your heart? Your affections, your desires, they're falling apart with all that other stuff. And we wonder why we're anxious. We wonder why we can't sleep. We wonder why we can only sleep. We wonder why we're only ever mad. We wonder why we're afraid to ever get mad. We wonder why all we do is cry. We wonder why we're afraid to even shed a tear. All of this mixed upness. It's coming from the reality that we're anxious because we're faced with the unknown and instead of turning to the Lord, we turn to what we control, we possess our life, but what we're possessing is falling apart and so is our heart with it. So what does Jesus say? I'm coming like a thief. Thanks. Not helpful. Or is it? I want to read another quote. Two more. This is from the Book of Common Prayer, the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. This is a prayer that you pray at night. It says, Be present, O merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night, so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this life may rest in your eternal changelessness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those of us who are wearied by the changes 
and chances of this life, which is those two words, change and chance, is where anxiety lives. Those of us who are wearied by what we cannot control, help us to rest in your eternal changelessness. A few weeks ago, we had the memorial service for Brian Faison here. Tragic situation. And we were at home, and we had to move from our house to the church really quickly to meet with uh, Brian, the one who passed away, meet with his wife, Delisa. And because of the, the, the fast nature of how we had to get here, Sophia, our daughter, was very aware of what was happening. And we haven't had specific conversations about death with her yet. And a few days later, we're driving to school, and she says this to me in the car. She says, Dad, if something happened to you and Mom, would I get a pastor? I was like, what do you mean, honey? Never answer your children. I don't care how old they are. Never answer them until you've asked at least three more questions. Laugh. Write that down, though. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, this lady lost somebody, and she, she got you and mommy, and she got to have a meeting. Would anybody bring me to a pastor so I could have some meetings? Will anyone talk to me? And, like, I'm answering her. I said, Sophia, there is a room filled with people who would love you in ways you can't possibly imagine. But another part of me was shattered at how, at five, she's confronted with the unknown and the potential for decay and death. And we have to have this conversation. And what does that do? That gives you anxiety. Yes, it does. Pastors shouldn't have anxiety. We only ever. Why do you think Paul in every letter is like, by the way, pray for me a lot, please. I just said, Lord, let me rest and give me words that can convey your eternal changelessness to myself, to my daughter. And then Jennifer Bailey, who is an elder at the AME Church, she says this, the practice that has brought me the most comfort is singing the hymns my elders taught me. I often flipped through our church's hymnal as a child at Bethel AME Church when my pastor's sermon was a little too long or a bit over my head. Thank you, Jennifer, for reminding the congregation that good things can happen even if the pastor's talking too long. These days, the hymn, Hold to God's Unchanging Hand, is at the forefront of my consciousness. It begins simply, time is filled with swift transition, naught of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. All of these prayers, these hymns, these quotes, Jennifer Bailey writing her 2022 devotional, her publisher needed her to write it in 2020 for 2022, so she's writing it smack in the middle of the pandemic Jesus says, do not be afraid. But here's the next ladder for us. And you haven't often heard me talk about this. But I am now because I feel like we can. Because we've set a groundwork for something. The way that we learn, you can't choose to not be afraid. And anyone who ever tells you that you can choose your depression away or choose your anxiety away or anyone who tells you that you can choose joy today, shut those little snippets off. Almost just cursed just now. Thank you, Jesus, that snippets came out of my mouth. Whew! It's going to happen one of these days. I repent in advance. I cannot believe it has not yet happened. You can't choose your way from anxiety to clarity, anxiety to security, you can't. We need to be retrained and reformed by, you ready? By a God who punishes, chastises, and corrects us. Pastor, you're, you're talking about not having anxiety today, right? Listen, 
forget, the, forget those notes. Listen. Why can we be afraid? Why can we walk in the fear of the Lord and have that be a good thing and not a toxic thing? I will tell you why now, and I will reiterate it later. Because with this parent we call our Father who art in heaven, with this parent, one punishment that he will never give is giving up on you. He will, one of his punishments will never be you and I can no longer be together. He's eternally changeless, and he's already chosen you, and he doesn't change. He's perfectly faithful. That doesn't even get at it. He is faithfulness so that we could learn to be faithful. He is commitment so that we can learn to be committed. He is loyalty so that we can learn to be loyal. He's more, it's more than just saying he's faithful. He is everything the word faithfulness is trying to get at. So because our relationship with him is never the thing on trial, he can discipline us and correct us and us know that it is only to get us closer to him. It's never the threat of us not being with him. We're going to show you how in a moment. Fear of the unknown leads to possessiveness. And possessiveness leads us to say, how can I learn to master my life? How can I learn to, and in Christian circles, we are so much more eloquent than that. We will say, Chelsea, I'm, heard you say, I'm sure you've heard this before, I want to walk in dominion. We won't say something like, I want to master my life, I want to control other people. We'll say, I'm walking in dominion. God has given me authority. I'm under authority so that I could have we want to master our life. We want to master Christianity. We want to master other people. We want to be able to, we, we think that strength is being able to predict everything that's going to happen and have a solution for it the minute it does. We want to master our children. We want to master our finances. And the more we try to master those things, the more we realize they only ever master us back. Have you ever tried to say, let's go to a child? I'm learning this now. Wait till you see. By the time Sophia is 16, I'm going to look like a president after an eight-year term. Just old and hurt and tired. You know those before and after pictures? They shrunk like three feet. Let's go. One more teensy minute. You can't measure minutes in size. Anyway, sorry. Inner monologue moment, ADD. Catching back up now. Try to master your life. What happens is when you give yourself to trying to control things, you're now at the mercy of anything that ever happens to them, and they end up slowly controlling us. So Jesus says, fear not, little flock. Sell everything that you have. You just told me not to be afraid. And now you're telling me to sell all that I have. What is he saying here? He's saying that the way we relate to things that, are, that, that, that can be in our control, the way we relate to stuff, the material world, the way we, we relate to it should be, and you've heard this before, with open hands and not closed fists. Let the things in your life remain in the palm of your hand, but don't close and control. Everything in your life can be sold. A gust of wind could take it away. Or as we read last week, sudden death can cause the Lord to say, now all these things that you prepared, whose will they be? Hold them loosely. Be good stewards of them. But now let's talk about what that means. What does it mean 
to steward the things in my life well. Do you see the, the hinge here is that the things in my life are the things that give me the illusion that if I can control them, I can get rid of my anxiety of the unknown. But then the more I control them, the more the unknown becomes a reality and they start to control me. So Jesus gives this parable. He says, stay dressed for action. I'm going to move very quickly now. He says, stay dressed for action. Well, why is that important? That's important because two times in the Bible, God says to stay dressed. Two times. One of them is to Job. And it's one of our favorite verses in the Bible where after days and weeks of conversating, God shows up to Job and his three friends and he's like, Job, dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you. Where were you when I invented air? Where were you when I came up with the idea of snow? Where were you when I told the lightning bolts where to go? Where were you when I told the hail when it could fall and when it shouldn't? Dress for action was a sign, Job, I'm ready to correct you. I'm going to punish you for a minute. What is your punishment going to be? I'm going to ask you questions that make you go, Ah. front of his friends and in front of his wife who was in the story Job's like let me ask you some questions and she was probably like he's not going to be able to answer them he hasn't been able to ever answer a question where were you when I created sea creatures that you don't even know of and I tossed them into the ocean so that they could play where were you that was what it means to stay dressed. I'm going to question you and show you that you got a little pride and a little arrogance going on in your heart. And it's why you're more and more miserable because you're trying to control this narrative by trying to decide why this suffering has come upon you. And that is controlling. But there's another time where God tells the people of Israel to stay dressed for action. And it's on the night that we now call Passover. When he says to Israel, tonight is the night that I'm freeing you from being possessed. Stay dressed. Have your kneading bowls close. We're going to be leaving Egypt quickly. So Jesus, in this parable, is again being a master storyteller. And he says to them, stay dressed, which means I'm going to punish you, but that punishment is going to free you. It's going to release you from the need to possess and therefore be possessed by your possessions. And he tells them a story. Servants are home. Master went to a feast. When that master comes back, he wants to find his servants awake. And it says that if he finds his servants awake, what will he do? Listen, the master is coming home. And when he comes home, if he finds his servants awake, what will the master do? He will put on his serving clothes and sit his servants down at a table and serve them. So, E, you could put the top half of the slide on. In this instance, the servants are us, and the master is Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm like a master who left, and I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to serve you. And again, at that time, in that moment that those words were uttered, masters were masters precisely because their servants served them. That's what made them masters is that they had servants. But this master is coming home to serve his servants. This master is wealthy, but he's using his wealth for the least of these. This master has influence, but he's using his influence for the least of these. This master has health, but he's using that health for the least of these. He's not possessing his possessions. He's pouring them out on the nameless servants that up until this point had no status, had no equity, had no rights. 
But Jesus is redefining what it means to master something, what it means to have dominion, what it means to walk in authority. Is not, I say what to do and you do it. It's, I serve you. Authority in the kingdom of God is not the best version of authority here. We've just taken authority here and we've made God's authority the best version of our authority. But his authority is nothing like ours. His authority is an authority that dies, it doesn't kill. That serves. It's subjects. That offers and doesn't demand payment. But then he flips the parable and he says, so when the master comes home, if he finds his servants awake, he'll serve them. And then he says, but if the master of the house knew when the thief, just trying to make sure we're awake, we got to be awake, just making sure you're awake. If the master knew when the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house get broken into. He just flipped the parable. So in the first half, we're the servants, and the master is Jesus. But in the second half, we're now the master of the house, and the thief is Jesus. In the first part, we're the servants, and he's the returning master. In the second part, we're the masters, and he's the thief coming. Why? We were good, Jesus, until part two. We were fine. We got it. He probably sensed that we understood the first part of that parable and so purposely said this part. Because Jesus doesn't ever want us walking away being able to control a story he just told. He wants us to walk away having that story in us and still narrating, still teaching, still calling us to account. In the second part, we're the masters now. And he's a thief. But why is he a thief? He said, if the master had known at what time the thief was coming, quickly, let's look at 1 Thessalonians. Oh, this is going to be quick. I can read the whole thing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. I'm jumping around a little E, I apologize. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul is picking up on Jesus' teachings. The, 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 thief will, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying what? There's peace and security. Why are they saying there's peace and security? Because we've mastered our lives. We have things where we want them. We got it. We have the life we've wanted. We got the house and the white picket fence and the dog and the vacations. We got it all. And so now that there's peace, and he's saying, when you think you have peace and security because you've controlled and possessed and manipulated your life to being a good one and somehow found a way to call it Christian, I'm going to come like a thief. And he says, then sudden destruction will come upon, I'm about to preach a little bit. Sudden destruction will come upon them. What kind of destruction? Somebody say it out loud. Sudden destruction as what? Labor pains. What kind of destruction? Labor pains. What kind of destruction? Giving birth. This is what Jesus does. Even when he destroys you, he destroys you in a way that a new you happens. Come on, Salem. He destroys you in such a way that a new you is birthed. It's not destruction like towers falling. It's destruction like a baby coming. This God that we serve, that we call Jesus, his punishment is different than our punishment, and that's why we can walk in the fear of him. Because even when he hurts us, he doesn't violate us. And even when he hurts us, he doesn't destroy us. Because his destruction is also a birth. Where am I? Everywhere, thanks. And they will not escape. But then he says this, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
What? The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night only to those of us who are mastering our lives and not serving others. If we're serving each other, selling our goods, giving of our time, giving of our abilities, giving of our ear in listening, and giving of our shoulder just to bear burdens and not try to fix everything, if we're offering ourselves to each other, then the day of the Lord will not be like a thief. Why? Because Jesus only wants to steal those things that keep you from him. That's the kind of thief he is. He's not trying, like, has anybody seen the movie Thief in the Night? I'm sorry. My parents showed me this movie when I was but a child. And I was scared to, if I came down the stairs and I couldn't see anybody, I'm like, oh no. It happened and I didn't go. Oh, thank God they're on the porch. I was pretty convinced as a child that if the rapture came, I would be taken and my parents would be left. But that's a different, different conversation. <laughs> Thief in the night was a theology that said God is coming to take the unbelievers away. But that is not what Jesus says, and that's not what Paul is saying. He's talking to believers and saying, if you're not living like believers, my return is going to steal something from you. I'll tell you where this parable actually plays out in the Bible. Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus is arrested. Jesus walks into a garden. Why is that significant? Because Adam walked out of a garden a sinner, and Jesus walks back into one at the end of his life. When Jesus walks back into the garden of Gethsemane, it is the master finally coming home to the garden from a long journey, like Jesus said. And he walks back into his now destroyed garden. And he's there to put on the garments of service, which is his cross. Because in the kingdom of heaven, masters show up to serve at an expense of their own stuff in life. And one of Jesus' disciples, well, let's start here. All of them are sleeping. And what is he saying? Stay awake, which is what his parable said. If the master comes home and the servants are sleeping, he's saying dress for action and stay awake. This is all leading to the anxiety thing. Everybody, hold on. We're getting back there. We're almost there. You can't see it because we're on a bend, but we're almost there. He says, stay awake, and that's what he's saying to his disciples. The master's home. I'm in the garden. Adam has come back to a garden again. The master is back. The one given dominion is back, and he's trying to get his disciples to wake up, and they don't. And then one of his disciples starts to beat the high priest's servant, Malchus, and Peter takes a sword and cuts his ear off. Jesus said, if I come home, and I find my, ser my, my servants beating their servants, I'll be coming home like a thief. And Jesus is now home in the garden again, ready to fix what's been destroyed by sin. And one of his servants cuts Malchus's ear off. And Jesus steals from Peter. He rebukes him. He takes his sword. He takes his flow. He takes his motivation. He takes his intentions. Were they good intentions? He steals them. Because they were misdirected good intentions. And Jesus says, live by the sword. Now pause. Almost done. I'm going to say almost done like 15 more times. This is so complicated. I'm going to use Sophia as an example one more time. Sorry, Steve. I'm going to use Sophia as an example one more time. Sophia runs across the street without holding my hand, without asking, without looking both ways. And so we say something like, Sophia, if you run across the street again like that, you're not going to have dessert after dinner tonight, or you're going to go to bed an hour early 
touching, or something like that. Now, listen to me. Her getting hit by a car is the consequences of the sin. Her having to go to bed early is the punishment to help her avoid the actions that lead to the consequences of sin. We have stewed these things together, and they're not the same thing, mom and dad. There are the consequences of sin, but punishment is designed to keep you from the actions that have consequences. We grew up thinking that Jesus was the one driving the car that would hit us if we weren't listening. That would be abuse. Jesus is the one punishing us so that our desires are rewired to want to be safe. But what we've called the punishment of God has really been the consequences of our sin. The punishment of God is something that happens in you. It's a rebuke. It's a chastisement. It's a moment when you know that God is redirecting your desires, opening up your clenched, possessive hands, loosening that ninja-like grip we have on our own reality so that we don't have the consequences of sin. If the car hits you, God didn't send the car. That's not his punishment. That's the result of us leaving the punishment and not being covered and protected by it. He picks up Malchus's ear and the master of the universe heals the one who's arresting him because... And buckle up for this one. Jesus would rather you be wrong than be right, than, than think you're right using the Bible and be wrong. Jesus would rather you reject him and never talk to him again than use the Bible and Christian principles the wrong way. Because it is more dangerous to be wrong as a Bible-thumping Christian than it is to not even know God at all. I said it, I'll say it for the rest of my darn life. When Jesus talks about hell, he talks to the Pharisees, not the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. When he talks about himself coming as a thief in the night, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to the people who didn't come here today. Some of you are Christians, just kidding, watching online. The one who is saying do not be afraid is the one who has to get out of our hands the things that we're controlling that are making us afraid. I'm going to say that again. The one who tells us do not be afraid is the one who's trying to pry open our hands so that we don't possess things and make ourselves afraid. Anxiety is the reality that you have tried to control your own life and can't. And can't. In that moment of suffocation, God is trying to take things that we're possessing. He's not trying to take them out of our life. He's trying to pry open our hand so that we hold them like this. Loosely. What we hold loosely, we can be generous with. What we hold tightly, we don't even have. It has us. And so, in this amazing parable, he's showing us what it means to master our life. And what it means to master our life is to serve. But in order to serve... We can't be controlling the things in our life. We have to leave them open to being lost. Because only the lost can be found. You're holding on to something because you're afraid. And we have to hear at the same time, do not be afraid, let go. But the letting go it might be God saying no ice cream tonight. 
It might be God saying, sending that disconcerting feeling into your stomach. I haven't been satisfied with my life for the whole year. He might be working on you. He might be blessing you with a dissatisfaction so that you let go. Stop controlling. Look at what it says in the rest of Thessalonians here, and then we will close. It says this, starting in verse 4, But you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the, of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, stay awake. The saved ones are awake. The ones who know me are awake. But my blood is so strong that whether you're awake or asleep, you're still mine. That kind of love we can fear because it doesn't hurt us or reject us. It heals us. The love that says, I want you to be awake, and if you're awake, you'll know me, and if you're asleep, you're not doing anything I want you to do, but also know that when I come, I'm coming for those who are awake and asleep because this father will get all of his children. So now we are free to be rebuked or punished or chastised because he steals those things from us. Not that we need to be ourselves, but he steals from us those things that keep us from being ourselves. He's the thief that when he's done stealing, your house looks better and more healthy than it did before he broke through the window. He breaks into Peter's life in a way that breaks open Peter's life to him. He breaks into your life in a way that breaks your life open to him. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Worship team. Every week we come to the table of the Lord. And what does he do here? So many different things. So many different things. One of the things he does at his table for us is he invites us into brokenness. And a lot of churches, the priest will break the bread. You'll hear it snap. He invites you into brokenness. Why? The Eucharist teaches us to be honest about what we're trying to avoid. It will break. And it will die. Let's be very positive today. Look at the person next to you. And say you're going to die. Just. <laughs> That's how you encourage a church, everybody. If you're aspiring to be in the ministry. <laughs> if you're ever aspiring to be in the ministry. Steve Saldana, where are you? Steve, if you're going to be a pastor one day, you've got to discourage the people at the very end. Yep. Steve is going to be a good pastor one day, everybody, just so you know. He invites you into brokenness so that you can say the truth. The money's going to run out. Your body's not going to work forever. The relationship you've worked as hard as you possibly can on, whether you try to control it or not, it's susceptible to breaking. The kids you pour over are free little spirits that can make whatever decisions they want. And as I'm learning now, God, give them children of their own because they will repent to their parents every single day. Mom and dad, 
I was a jerk, and I'm sorry. He invites you into reality. Reality right now, saints, is broken. If our expectation is that we can be Christians so well that we no longer have any problems, we will be riddled with anxiety because that's not going to happen. And the Eucharist tells us that life is just going to be broken. It sounds negative because we don't hear the truth enough. It's going to end. It's going to break. It will. It will. The word glory in the Bible is also where they get the word martyrdom from. The glory of God is people who die faithfully. He invites us into this brokenness so that we can tell the truth to our body. One of the reasons why we live anxious is because we have expectations for ourselves that Jesus does not have for us. Jesus doesn't say you're going to wake up and one day the problems are going to be gone. He says you'll wake up and there will be new mercies for the problems that you're still going to have. That's what he says. If we think we can outperform our issues, we will be so tired and so stressed and so angry with ourselves and so full of guilt. He invites us into this and says, church for 2,000 plus years, enter the brokenness and know that I'm slowly putting it back together again. We have wrongly called this the Last Supper. This is the beginning of many suppers that the church will have for maybe another two, three, four, five, ten thousand years. One day we might be called the early church. But when Jesus comes and we see the other side of this meal and the loaf is whole, and tears are wiped away, then we will not need to walk in the fear of the Lord anymore because then wisdom will be complete. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but one day wisdom will be complete and we won't need the fear of the Lord on the other side of this meal. But until then, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim his death until he returns. We are people who can look at our worst-case scenario and say, even in you, worst-case scenario, Jesus is present. And he's healing our worst-case scenarios while they're happening. I know that's scary. That scares me. I'm sitting here saying, should you really be saying this right now? High voice all day. Should you really be? And I'm like, yes, I really should be. High voice, stop. Deep, confident voice. Yes, it doesn't feel right because we don't want it to be right. But he's inviting us into brokenness and saying, watch what I do with it. Watch what I can do with you in your brokenness. Watch what happens when you're in the valley of the shadow of death and realize you can fear no evil because I'm with you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread and that he broke it and that he gave thanks and said, this is now my body. All suffering is now my body. All things that go wrong is now my body. Broken into the brokenness. So that suffering now has to suffer me. Suffering now has to suffer us, Salem. When we suffer, and we suffer without controlling, without possessing, suffering begins to suffer until one day suffering is no more. And after supper, you took the cup of wine, and after you had given thanks, you said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Father God, I pray right now that you descend on this bread and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would descend on us and allow us to look at our brokenness, allow us to face Goliath, allow us to look at the valley of the shadow of death and say, teach me, Lord, to fear no evil. Teach me 
to not have anxiety. Teach me to fear you in the right way and to be secure in the right way. Teach me what it means to be a person who's willing, even in older age, to be taught, to be a disciple, and to learn. And those of us, Father God, who are feeling that season that is like ours and this is our prime and this is where we should be killing it the most. I pray that you would slow us down and remind us that we need to learn, that we need to learn from those who have gone before us, that we need to be rebuked, that we need to be corrected, and that is not a failure. It's the way of the kingdom. I pray that we would be a church of teachable people, people who can learn and repent, ask and give forgiveness and that nothing in our life would be a possession, but it would all be held with open hands to serve those around us, not just our church, not just our family, but the world at large. You didn't possess your own body. Help us to let go of the things we're holding on to too tightly. Salem, I'm gonna be right here, this side of the room, you can come, this side of the room, you can come to me right here in the middle for communion. If you would rather have one of the individual cups, the ushers are here. Worship and come to the Lord's table and enter his healing brokenness this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.